we are addicted to the concept that if we just yell loud enough or measure enough or, or exhort enough, things will get better. I don't know where that comes from, but it's deeply embedded in the psyche, at least in Western cultures. And it's embedded in the psyche of, of leaders, of, of executives and policymakers that we're, if things aren't going well because we haven't pounded the table hard enough or we haven't held people accountable enough or measured enough, that is simply not true. This podcast is to accompany our new series of articles on quality improvement in the BMJ in partnership with the Health Foundation. The series launched in May and aims to make quality improvement more accessible to frontline clinicians. You can find it on our website, bmj.com forward slash quality improvement. I'm Kat Chatfield and I'm the quality improvement editor here at the BMJ. And I've been talking to Don Berwick, President Emeritus of the Institute of Healthcare Improvement in Boston in the US. In the UK, he's probably best known as the author of the Berwick Report, Post-Mid-Staffs. We talked about how Don went from being a paediatrician to running Medicare for President Obama, how we can create headroom and stress systems, and how we can break the rules to make things better for patients and staff. For listeners who may not be familiar with your work and your career, um, perhaps you could talk a bit about how you got started in quality improvement. Thanks, Kat. I really appreciate the chance to join you. Uh, I'm a pediatrician by training and uh, was practicing pediatrics uh, uh, part-time and also got involved in health services research and in, uh, some, to some degree in healthcare management. My research background was in technology assessment and cl- uh, cost effectiveness and clinical decision making and also pedi- pediatrics and public health. Um, as a pediatrician, I was uh, often confounded by the systems I was working in. I, you know, things didn't go smoothly. Uh, Test results got lost. I couldn't find equipment that I needed. Uh, communication with patients was sometimes very difficult. Coordination with specialists. I, I think I ran into the same problems in continuity of care that all clinicians do. And as a manager trying to organize better care, I was equally frustrated because the methods that we were using, which I now understand mainly to be methods of inspection, we would do reports on safety or reports on complications or reports on on uh, infection rates, um, it, it was, everything stayed the same. Things weren't getting better. We're talking about the, uh, the mid-1980s now. Um, uh, and uh, I quite accidentally and luckily uh, encountered the work of um, scholars of what I now understand to be improvement, quality improvement, uh, the, the technical approaches to quality that I was unfamiliar with but were used in other industries, not in healthcare. And at the time, I was vice president for quality of care measurement in a large American organization. And I proposed that we take these methods under advisement, not that healthcare is the same as making computers or automobiles or services, but there are some things we could learn, I thought. And that began my journey. So by the mid-1980s, I was studying how other industries than healthcare were using very modern, very scientifically grounded approaches to redesigning their processes, their, their, their products, their services, getting much, much better results. And uh, was I was lucky enough with colleagues to get a grant from a foundation, the John A. Hartford Foundation, to test out the idea that modern approaches to improvement could help in healthcare. Um, I was um, uh, convinced very quickly that these approaches could help, and they were far superior to the to what we were using, which was basically exhortation and blaming and yelling at people or just setting goals that were unrealistic. 
uh, if we were scientists about improvement of care, we could improve care faster than if we didn't do it scientifically, just as just as we were doing in bioscience. Um, in the late 1980s, that led my colleagues and me to found a nonprofit organization, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, IHI, uh, which is now almost 30 years old. Uh, it began as an American organization working with healthcare organizations uh, in the United States to try to learn and adapt better methods for making care better for patients. Uh, and very quickly, by the mid-1990s, it had become quite global. I met the National Health Service in the early 1990s, thanks at that time to uh, Sir Alan Langlands, who was running the NHS, and asked me to offer some advice. And, and my relationship to the NHS throughout the UK has never stopped. Um, the IHI grew. Um, it uh, it uh, became global, as I said. Um, it, it now works on every continent, and it tries to help um, healthcare leaders, uh, physicians, nurses, executives, managers, even policymakers now figure out how to make care far better than it's ever been before. That's my personal background, but my journey took a turn when President Obama, newly elected, asked me to come to Washington to run Medicare and Medicaid. The Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services are the federal architecture we have in the United States to provide health care to elders and to uh, people in poverty. Uh, I took that on. I left IHI to do that and now have returned to IHI as a senior fellow and president emeritus where I continue that work. I think what really resonated with me listening to that was when you talked about the um, frustrations that you found in your working life as a pediatrician back in the mid 80s around uh, test results and continuity of care and fragmentation. And I think what struck me was that many clinicians working today are still going to be feeling that they're experiencing all of those things and potentially for some people feeling that those problems are possibly worse now. Um, particularly in the NHS with the sort of pressures the system's under and, and the sort of demand um, than perhaps they were five years ago. Um, so sort of why do you feel we're still battling with these problems, even though we've had 30 years of um, understanding uh, these methods and this science of how we can improve care and make it better than ever before? I think there are many reasons. Uh, I'd say that the, the two major ones are probably cultural and technical. Uh, I'll start with the technical side. The, the, if you come to IHI, which I hope your listeners will here in, in Boston, Massachusetts, uh, you'll find um, the rubric, uh, every system is perfectly designed to achieve exactly the results it gets. Every system is perfectly designed to achieve exactly the results it gets. That's the scientific foundational idea behind modern improvement, that, that the, the performance we're experiencing, the mortality rates, infection rates, satisfaction levels, costs, all of these are characteristics of the way the system is built. It's a total misunderstanding to assume that it's a matter of effort, that, that if only the doctors or nurses would try harder, things would be better. That's absolutely not true. You could, you could fire every doctor and nurse in America or England today, put in a new group tomorrow, and you get exactly the same results because the Performance is being created by the system of work in which we're embedded. Just as in the middle of the night as a pediatrician, when I would scurry around trying to find supplies I badly needed, but they weren't there, the performance was being, my performance was being determined by the system. So, so if that's true, um, then uh, if you really want to do better, you have to change the system, uh, which means redesign. You have to take the way you're doing the work today and make it different tomorrow. That's happening all over the world today. It's happening a lot in the UK, in the NHS. 
But change is difficult, and and people people get trapped in habits and beliefs about the the way things are done. We've always done it that way, or the new thing will never work. Instead of becoming curious and optimistic and scientific about about changing work, so my whole career is devoted to changing the processes of care so that the people in the care giving the care can do better. So you, they don't have to be heroes. They can they can just do their work and it'll go well. But that's it's, that's science. No one ever taught me in medical school how to change a process or how to even understand the process. Nobody ever taught me how to use data to help really understand what might do what might do better than the current mode. No one ever taught me how to make a little experiment locally to try out something new and learn or even to search around the neighborhood or the planet for something better than what I'm doing today. So we have to become technicians of improvement. That involves changing the competence, the role, the equipment of the professions. It involves uh, management who liberate doctors and nurses and clinicians and managers to do new stuff, to try new things. So we, we, we need to become expert improvers, and that's been going really slow because we're working so hard doing it the way we're doing it today. We don't have the time. We don't have the headroom to try something new. Headroom is – it's all about headroom. It's all about the ability to try, try new things and learn using the skills of improvement. So that's the technical side. Culturally, we are addicted to the concept that if we just yell loud enough or measure enough or, or exhort enough, things will get better. I don't know where that comes from. But it's deeply embedded in the psyche, at least in Western cultures. And it's embedded in the psyche of, of leaders, of, of executives and policymakers that we're, if things aren't going well because we haven't pounded the table hard enough or we haven't held people accountable enough or measured enough, that is simply not true. Uh, the job of a leader is to support the, the people doing the work to change their work, to learn. Um, and that was the burden of the Mid-Staffordshire report that you mentioned in introducing me. That was what our group arrived at. The, the NHS's future, if it's going to be a good one, will lie in becoming a learning organization, not yelling louder. But that's hard to give up. It's, it, it, it's sometimes more comfortable to think that if I just push harder, things will get better. And it's the seductive first answer. It just has to be a wrong answer. The culture change is to shift one's mentality to be, con to be interested in learning. For doctors and nurses and clinicians, we've been taught to be heroes. We've been taught that if we try harder, things will get better. And, and we get we, we somehow become almost co-conspirators in that in that mistake. The, the doctor of the future needs to be a citizen in improvement of this of the systems in which she or he works. And that's a new professional identity, also a culture change. So we've got a lot to do. I must say I'm very optimistic though. Whenever the tides turn toward modern improvement, good things happen. People feel better, care gets better, work gets more more enjoyable. Uh, so I, I, I really am I'm, I'm positive about the future if we'll just keep open minds about the methods. Thank you. I think that's a really helpful way of looking at it, the, the technical um, the technical side of things and the cultural side of things. And I think certainly what we're hoping to do with some of the some of the papers in the series is to help support people to to start thinking about the technical aspect of things and, and how they can um, learn a little bit about improvement as a uh, become technicians of improvement. Uh, I think the cultural piece is a lot more challenging in many ways. Um, because as you say, the culture is what generates the headroom for people to have the space to think about improving care as well as just delivering care 
as usual. Um, and I culture, I think, often as a frontline clinician, you may feel that the culture of your organisation is something that's very external to you and is set elsewhere by perhaps the leadership, as you said. What do you think frontline staff, how do you think they can influence the culture of their organisation um, and their teams? That's a big question. It is, yeah. I mean, there's no, it's highly contextual. It depends on the kind of organisation you're in. A couple of things. One is um, there is science here. That is improvement, the way I understand it today, it's really a very well-grounded set of approaches grounded in, in, uh, in sciences like statistical thinking, uh, industrial engineering and process management, uh, uh, cognitive and social psychology, uh, epistemology. Th these are big topics, but the, the, the modern organization that really understands improvement, it has mastered these sciences, which we're not taught as clinicians, but clinicians can learn it. Uh, if I can be um, self-centered for a minute, the, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, where, where I now am senior fellow, has the IHI Open School for Health Professions. It's a web-based environment uh, where any professional, certainly any student, can log on and begin to take online courses, short courses. There are about 30 of them. Uh, can participate in conversations and learning processes with colleagues. Uh, there are similar opportunities under different sponsorship, uh, multiple different sponsorship in the in the UK with the with the uh, the Health Foundation, with the British uh, British Medical Journal, and and others offer ways to learn. So go become a student, study improvement, and and if people want, I'll be happy to supply ideas about where to do that. Uh, the second thing you can do locally is sort of act improvement, behave in an improving way. What does that mean? It means be aware of your interdependencies because systems are about interdependency and explore them. Uh, you know, ask your, ask a nurse tomorrow, is there anything I could have done differently yesterday that would have made your work easier? Uh, ask a patient, deeply ask a patient, how is this for you? What, how's it going? You know, what, what do you notice around here that you think could be better? Uh, form groups of, of colleagues, uh, sit together and talk about changes you'd like to make in your work. Um, you, you, can, you can do this locally. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of it does depend on leaders, on executives, boards of trustees, boards of directors, uh, uh, managers, uh, and, and we need to help the leadership really adopt the new philosophy of improvement, and that's tough. As a, as a, if you're a frontline clinician, I, I'm not sure what you can do. You can talk to your leaders about it. You can encourage them to study. You can be generous with them, understanding that their jobs are hard, too, uh, but unless... Uh, uh, the game is to change the methods so that things get better. In the UK right now, in all four UK nations, as you mentioned earlier, Kat, the work pressures are very severe, and in my opinion, uh, uh, over you know overzealous budget cuts now have resulted in even more pressure on a workforce that's really trying about as hard as it can, and that reduces headroom. It takes away some of the slack that we need to learn and, and be in dialogue and explore the future. And that's very costly. And so as a, as a frontline clinician, unfortunately, you're going to have to find the slack somewhere. You're going to have to work with your system to see if you can get a little bit of extra space to invent and to learn and to exchange. And the NHS, NHS England has invested, invested for three years in the, in the Vanguard program, the New Care Models program, which was my main work over the past few years visiting these vanguard sites around the nation, and it was thrilling with just a little bit of extra support and a little bit of extra permission. 
uh, I saw invention thrive, just emerge, just soar out of the, out of the out of the workforce, trying new things, inventing new ways to deal with primary care and primary care specialty relationships and cues and um, patient empowerment and uh, community-based care. It was it's really something. So you've got in the English NHS, a tremendous reservoir of, 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 uh, of experience around invention, if only you can grasp it and use it. Thank you. And I, I think there are some really exciting, as you say, some really exciting inventions and, and innovations and areas who are, which are really moving forward in the way they deliver care. And I suppose the, the perhaps the bigger challenge for us at the moment in the NHS is how to how to make that sustainable and how to how to spread those things beyond small pockets um, of well, not I know the vanguard's quite large, but you know pockets and individual areas and how to to spread them across the system. I keep seeing these uh, these gems, you know, around the country. I could name you uh, physicians and nurses and and, and small hospitals and uh, physician groups that have done amazing inventions. And my, my you know, I sort of wish that were a possible to wave a wand and everyone would know about them and then could start to say, well, maybe we can make use of that here locally. That's a big challenge, as you said, Kat. And, uh, but it's a very good challenge and it's one the NHS needs to grasp wholeheartedly. How do you take great ideas that surface in the local area and make them available to and known by everybody? Absolutely. And then how do you uh, take them to new areas, but still remain respectful of the, the context and the different context and um, the, the ownership that that new area has to take of, of those ideas? Um, it's, it's something that we're working on. The thing that I wanted to come back to just now is um, you said it, you reflected on the, the pressures that you feel in the NHS at the moment. And, and I think many of our listeners will agree with you about the financial policy um but actually i think i'd like to return to this idea of uh, just exhorting people to try harder and to people people just to feel that that trying more and more is is that sort of their response to this um this pressure there's a a a, a scholar a japanese scholar of improvement named noriaki kano professor kano who once articulated a way to categorize improvements he said there are three kinds of improving one is uh to um to remove a defect. Uh, in our case, that would be an infection that someone might get in a hospital or, or an error in, in a surgical procedure, to remove a defect. The second kind of improvement is to remove waste, to remove cost while maintaining or improving the experience of the people you serve, just taking waste out of the system. And the third kind of improvement is inventing something completely new, something that never existed before, a new product, new service, a totally new thing. Um, like uh, our, in, in medicine, that might be a laparoscopic surgery. It didn't exist, then it did, and it was completely new. So uh, it, w- when you're under a lot of stress, like the NHS is, Kano 2, the second category, is particularly interesting. This is removing costs, removing waste, without harming or sometimes even improving the situation of the person you're trying to help. Now, if you, if you look at any system, you're going to see tremendous amounts of energy that doesn't do any good for anyone at all. And I would counsel a stressed organization to go there first. What are you doing that isn't helping? A good example might be administrative rules or procedures that simply add viscosity with no benefit at all. 
The Institute for Healthcare Improvement uh, runs uh, two collaboratives, one called the Leadership Alliance in the United States and the other called Health Improvement Alliance Europe, which is a European collaborative. Each has about 40 organizations working on improvement very hard right now, the, the trying to achieve what's called the triple aim, better care, better health, and lower cost. And uh, last year, both collaboratives did a project called Breaking the Rules for Better Care. The, in both collaboratives, the leadership asked the uh, the clinicians, patients, the carers, staff, what, what are we requiring that really doesn't help anybody at all and gets in the way of, of care? And lo and behold, in the United States, 360 rules were identified by 24 organizations in one week. And then the European Alliance beat that number. I think they got close to 500 rules identified in a week. There's a good place to start. Find out what we're doing. What are we doing that's creating, making our work harder with no benefit to anyone at all? In other words, use improvement to extract costs and effort that aren't helping anyone. My colleague Maureen Vizigiano calls it exnovation. Find the innovations that actually remove work and resource use. And then, then you have some headroom. You have those resources to rededicate to other kinds of improvement. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I've seen it work over and over again. When, when these organizations looked for the administrative uh, waste that you and I were just talking about, uh, they discovered something really interesting, which is everyone thought at the beginning that these, these rules, these procedures, these habits would, would be externally imposed, that regulations or laws or outside surveillance were requiring them. Actually not. About 85% of the wasteful procedures were absolutely embedded. They, they were in the organization and from the organization. The organization could change them tomorrow. Nobody was requiring them. So th that gave me a lot of optimism about that, that approach. A lot of the things you've been talking about sound like they require a lot of risk or a lot of energy on the part of the clinician to speak up, to challenge the status quo, to um, stand against some of the existing rules or to break the rules. So you've run large healthcare organisations. How do you think the system can be set up to encourage that kind of behaviour or to at least not discourage it? I think... Um... I think scholars of improvement early on learned that if you don't trust your workforce, you really shouldn't start. The people doing the work in any industry, uh, no matter what they're doing, let alone something as noble as healthcare, they're really trying hard to do well. They would like to do well. They would like to be proud of their work. They like to feel joyous about their work. The, and, and, the, and they want to bring their imaginations to work uh, to help everyone. Um, as a leader, you, you you walk a tight line. I mean, you, of course, you need some systems of control and 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 and, and uh, discipline. But on the other hand, your job as a leader really is to liberate that imagination so that it can it can it can help everyone. Um, that's a tough that's a tough thing for leaders to realize and to act on. And in a in a political system where where you're where the NHS in your case is being watched by politicians by the media all the time. It's even harder because if something goes wrong, well, there'll be a headline about it. On the other hand, you only live once and improvement always requires risk. I mean, every child that ever learned to ride a bicycle fell first. And every organization that tries to improve healthcare is not gonna be successful necessarily the first time around. You also have to be very, very honest about what isn't right now. You, 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 you have to stare problems in the face and give them names. And that's also difficult. The, the, the leadership message is there's no other way to excellence than that. Transparency, openness, 
fearless innovation and supporting supporting truth, supporting honesty. For the workforce, you've got your job too. You've got to behave that way as far as you possibly can. And uh, hopefully your leader knows that and you'll find a good partner in the leadership willing to help you identify problems and help you use your imagination with your colleagues to solve them. If not, uh, take a breath and try anyway. There's a, there, there's a, there's a sort of a moral duty here that, that, that when you became a professional, you agreed to, and that is to say what's wrong and work to make it better. Um, I know that's not easy. Uh, I don't mean to be glib about it, but, uh, you know, that's, um, that's the job. Um, is there one final thing that you might, uh, want to say to a listener who is uh, thinking about, um, becoming, um, more involved in improvement and uh, creating some headroom in their daily work to uh, to improve the service they offer. Is there something you could leave with them? With them, I would want your listeners to be optimistic first about their ability to grow as individuals. Uh, you know, I, I I discovered through friends this amazing field of improvement. I've it's, I've been a student for years. You can be too, and uh, it's not. It really isn't quantum physics. It's, it's pretty sensible stuff, but go, going, really going to school and learning it will help you. You'll be able to try new things and you'll find um, colleagues who want to do it as well. And in IHI, we always say never worry alone. Uh, get together with others, learn and, and, and grow just, just like I had a chance to do when I first got into this field. I think the other message I want to give is, is a sort of a, it's more, a, it's, it's a broader message, which is from the outside, uh, anyone who's looks at the National Health Service, uh, understands what a massive and important investment in human dignity and health it really is. It's, it's, a, it's, an, it's an amazing thing your country did when it set up the NHS. The current clinicians are, you're like the stewards of that. You are, you are, you are holders of a legacy, which you'll pass on someday. And for all the distress and all of the feelings of being pressed too hard right now and the misunderstandings, which tend to affect morale. I hope I hope the people of the NHS understand as clearly as I do what it, what an immense treasure you have in your hands and that it's really worth the effort for you to be working to make it even better and to uh, get to the next level of confidence and, and optimism about its future. I know you can do that. And so uh, thank you for that work. That was Don Berwick, President Emeritus of the Institute of Healthcare Improvement talking about healthcare improvements, and it was part of the QI series sponsored by the Health Foundation, which is now on bmj.com. We'll be doing more of these podcasts in the future, so subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from, except for Spotify. We will be on Spotify soon. That's all for this podcast, but we'll be back soon with more from our food series, and we'll hear about research into opioid sales on the dark net. <laughs>